Good morning, church. Uh, we are <clears throat> we are blessed um, to have so many talented musicians and vocalists within this body, and it's such a blessing to be here with you, worshiping the Lord together. Um, and thank you to Brandon and the music team for putting in all the work to, to pick out songs and to practice and to to lead us in that worship each and every week, along with Cameron and everyone else. Um, it's a blessing. So, this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Um, I apologize for not having notes prepared for you guys. I did uh, leave some blank sheets of paper back there for you. So you can take notes in the old-fashioned manner. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I saw the extreme disappointment on Kaya's face when Dave was telling her, there's no notes today. It was like a gut punch. <laughs> Sorry, Kaya. <laughs> well, as you all well know, we live in a culture that is rapidly descending into chaos and depravity. A culture that's full of hatred and anger and jealousy and strife. And of course it is. Because for decades and decades now, enlightenment thinking and atheistic secular humanism have taken over the public sphere, have taken over our educational institutions. We've been taught, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, that God is dead and that the universe is one great big accident. Nothing and no one is guiding it. And humans are just highly evolved animals with no real reason for being here. In fact, humans are a plague on this planet. The result of this is men like Richard Dawkins, a British evolutionary biologist and author, Listen what Dawkins here says in one of his more famous quotes. He says, The universe we observe has precise, precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. No design. No purpose, just blind indifference. How depressing is that? To live your life with nothing to guide you, no purpose, no meaning, nothing at the bottom. It's all just chaos. It's all random. So anything goes. But I think what we'll see this morning, church, is that the Apostle Peter 
holds a much different view than Richard Dawkins. We'll see today that we can have confidence, certainty, and assurance that the one true and living God is not indifferent. But he has designed all things and is working all things according to his purpose. But before we go to our text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would open our hearts, open our minds to the truth of your word, and that these truths would grip us and that we would hold tightly to them. We pray that your word, through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, would strengthen our faith and produce in us a deeper knowledge and love for you and a life of faithfulness that is unshakable and full of joy. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so hopefully you've found your way to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-12. through 12. I'm going to try to take more water breaks this time, guys. So just some brief context to the letter of 1 Peter. Peter, 1 Peter is named for the apostle who wrote it, Peter. And he wrote it to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was likely writing um, somewhere from the early to mid-60s A.D. And this was during a time where Christians throughout the Roman Empire were experiencing extreme persecution at the hands of the Romans as well as the hands of the Jews. We see the buildup of this persecution throughout the book of Acts and in the historic writings of men like Josephus and Tacitus. And this persecution would only intensify as the decade of the 60s wore on. And so Peter's message to the saints of that day and of today is to call them to perseverance and joy in the midst of trials and suffering. So let's read the text. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. <clears throat> Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The main point this morning is that the sovereign triune God is working in and through suffering for the joy of his saints. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We see Peter speaking as an apostle, as one appointed by Christ himself and empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry the message of the hope of the gospel to the world. As apostle, he speaks with the authority of Christ himself. And he addresses the letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect, meaning those chosen by God the Father from before the foundation of the world. As we'll see in verse 2. Right away, Peter sets out to establish the sovereignty of God. He reminds his readers of God's divine sovereignty in election. And he also calls them exiles of the dispersion, which is thought by some to refer to the Jews who were exiled in Assyria and dispersed throughout the surrounding region. But I believe with others that it is likely referring to all believers in Christ. Either way, it is addressed to new covenant believers. And the point and purpose of the message is the same, that our citizenship is in heaven, but we are exiled here on earth. In this sin-ridden world, we are exiled in these sin-plagued bodies. We are exiled in the midst of a people who are at enmity with God and his church. We are exiled in this sinful flesh which wages war against our desires for holiness. And what Peter wants us to see is that God is not only sovereign over our election. He's also sovereign over our exile. He is working this exile and suffering for good and for glory and for our joy. 
In verse 2, we see that this ordained election and exile is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father. And because God is sovereign, you can't disconnect His omniscience from His decree. His decree is working its way out in history. His foreknowing is His doing. He foreknew you. He predestined you, called you, justified you, and glorified you from before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 28-30 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Our election... Our being chosen is for His plan and His purpose. And our exile here is for His plan and for His purpose. It's all ordained by our good Father. For our good and for His glory. And we see that this election is enacted by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has sanctified us. He is sanctifying us, and He will sanctify us. This means He has set us apart, and He makes us holy. Unto God and His purposes. The Spirit regenerates, taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. He brings new birth, making you a new creation with new affections and desires. And this is done for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is King, and to Him belongs the obedience of the nations. And it's done for sprinkling with the blood of Christ. Which brings me to sub-point one, that Christ suffered to accomplish your salvation and your joy. It's done for sprinkling with the blood of Christ. Exodus 28 and 29 gave detailed instructions for the crafting of the priestly garments of Aaron and his sons. To the priests and their garments, the altar and all the utensils of the tabernacle or temple were to be purified and made holy by the blood of bulls and rams being sprinkled upon them. We now are purified and made holy by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. Peter speaks in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, of how Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and that by His wounds we are healed. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh so that 
he might suffer the wrath of the Father for your sin and mine. And because he became the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, you and I have salvation. For the joy set before him, he suffered mocking, ridicule, hatred, pain, persecution, the rejection of the very people he created, and he suffered being forsaken by the Father. You and I have peace with God, access into his presence, freedom from sin, because Christ poured out his blood and suffered. Our election and everything necessary to accomplish it was done by our sovereign triune God. And this causes Peter to burst out into praise in verses 3 through 5. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now Matt, Matt Wolf dealt with this section, verses 3 through 5, three through five of, on Easter this, this year. But these glorious truths are worth being reminded of. The suffering of Christ preceded the glory of his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, as well as our salvation and everything that comes with it. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 18, we're told, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The merciful triune God caused our new birth. We were dead in sin and he made us alive, alive to a living hope, because our Savior rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And he ascended to the Father, where he is seated at his right hand and is ruling and reigning and interceding for you and me right now. And again in chapter 3, Peter tells us in verse 22, that Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with the angels, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. There is in heaven kept for you an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable because Jesus lives forever. An inheritance that is undefiled because Jesus is infinitely holy. An inheritance that's unfading because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our inheritance is secure because Jesus keeps it. What is this inheritance? Well, verse 5 tells us it's our salvation. 
which is ready to be revealed in the last time. And what are we saved from? From the wrath of a holy God against our sin. But we're also saved unto something. We're saved unto God and His purposes. We're granted entrance into His kingdom where we enter as sons through union with Jesus Christ. We get God and all His promises. And our inheritance is kept in heaven in the strong hands of Jesus because we've been given to Jesus by the Father. We belong to Jesus, and now we abide in Jesus. And not only is our inheritance kept in heaven for us, but we are kept and guarded for it. Here and now, through faith, faith which was not our own doing, it is the gift of God through the Spirit. And this faith keeps us for that day when our salvation is finally realized. And all of this is God's doing. You and I did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to cause it. We do nothing to keep it. He's done it all. So as verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. We rejoice in our glorious God and all He has accomplished for us. We rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in our inheritance. We rejoice in the One who keeps it for us and keeps us for it. Subpoint two is that we suffer for the purpose of sanctification, glorification, and joy. Continuing on in verse 6, we read, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Though now for a little while, namely this lifetime, we grieve and suffer through various trials. But in the scheme of eternity, this life is just a vapor. It's just a little while. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's light and momentary. But also notice that little phrase, if necessary. Honestly, it's easy to brush over that little phrase in passing, but it has huge meaning for us. Necessary. Who deems suffering necessary? God does. See, verse 7 goes on to tell us that our trials and our suffering are necessary so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter compares the trials of life to a refiner's fire. 
The extreme heat of the fire causes the dross and the impurities to separate from the gold so that the refiner can remove them. And what remains is pure and precious and valuable. The trials and suffering of life are not, as Dawkins says, random, purposeless, meaningless. And we know that they aren't random or purposeless because nothing in our sovereign God's universe is random or purposeless. Everything, hear this church, everything is by design. Everything has meaning. Everything has purpose. A purpose according to God's will. And He deems it necessary. Trials like fire, cause pain. And in our own church body, we have seen and experienced this in all manner of ways just within the last few months. It was painful for Hannah Seelock to lose her father, David. It was painful for Brian Otten to lose his mother, Kim. Or for Jan to lose Jim. And it was painful in more than one sense for Jacob Hicks to lose his fingers and his job. It's painful when your parents divorce or you lose a child. It's painful when church discipline is carried out. It's painful when you have financial struggle or struggles with health and chronic physical pain. It's painful when a friend or a parent or a child or a spouse rejects Christ and walks away from the faith. It's painful to be mocked and ridiculed and persecuted for your faith, especially at the hands of someone you love. It's painful, but here this church, it is never without purpose. God's design in all these things, His purpose is to refine your faith. And it's through the trials that your faith proves to be genuine. It's through trial that your faith is purified and strengthened And hear this, church, it's because God loves you and counts your faith as more precious than gold that He ordains the suffering in your life. Genuine faith in Christ is the most valuable thing in the life of a believer. We want so badly to hang on to things, to people, to jobs, to health, to comfort. But God's love for you is so great that He would rather you lose the good in order to give you the best, namely, more of Himself. The world would tell us to look within ourselves to find joy, or to take some me time, or to look to other things to find joy, like career and burying yourself in your work. 
or money and material possessions. Maybe if I just have enough stuff, the latest iPhone or clothes or car or house. Or we could look to overindulgence in food and drink. Maybe if I just drown my stress and my sorrows in ice cream and alcohol, I'll find joy. Or we look to our own body image. Maybe if I could just look a certain way, I'll be happy. So we start the latest diet or perhaps deprive ourselves of food altogether. Or we spend all our time at the gym or in sports. Or maybe physical and emotional pleasure will bring lasting joy. So you flirt with a coworker or a neighbor or someone online. Or you enter into sexual relationships or you watch explicit videos. Or maybe you can make yourself feel better by gossiping and tearing others down to build yourself up. There's almost an endless list of ways that we could seek to find joy and all of them are false gods that do not deliver on what they promise. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we could seek joy in any number of these, of, of these things, but all of them are terrible gods. They're like cisterns, which we dig out for ourselves and turn to for life-giving water, but they're broken. There's no life in them. No hope, no assurance, no joy to be found. Charles Spurgeon, excuse me, in an article about Charles Spurgeon, we read this. Charles Spurgeon's body slumped beneath the cruel pain of gout and kidney disease. He was downcast in the dark valley of depression, and he was embroiled in the last great theological battle of his life, the downgrade controversy. During that time, he picked up his Bible to meditate deeply on the promises of God contained therein. It was then that he began writing his devotional work, The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Quoting from Spurgeon, I commenced these daily portions when I was wading in the surf of controversy. Since then, I have been cast into waters to swim in, which but for God's upholding hand would have proved waters to drown in. I have endured tribulation from many flails, Sharp bodily pain succeeded mental depression, 
And this was accompanied both by bereavement and affliction in the person of one dear as life, his wife Susanna. The waters rolled in continually, wave upon wave. I do not mention this to exact sympathy, but, I, but simply to let the reader see that I am no dry land sailor. I have traversed those oceans, which are not Pacific full many a time. I know the roll of the billows and the rush of the winds. Never were the promises of Jehovah so precious to me as at this hour. Some of them I never understood till now. I had not reached the date at which they matured, for I myself was not mature enough to perceive their meaning. And while enduring tribulation from many flails, Spurgeon's appreciation for the Bible grew as well when he asserted, how much more wonderful is the Bible to me now than it was a few months ago. In obeying the Lord and bearing his reproach outside the camp, I have not received new promises, but the result to me is much the same as if I had done so. For the old ones have opened up to me with richer stores. Spurgeon knew the meaning and purpose of suffering. He knew that the Christian who seeks refuge from the storms of life in Christ will find peace and rest and comfort and true, lasting, enduring joy. And looking back to our passage, we read in verse 7 that the faith in Jesus that is tested and found genuine and precious will be praised and glorified and honor, honored at the last day when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your faith will be praised. Your faith will be honored. Your faith will be glorified. And as Christians who firmly believe that only God is worthy of praise and glory and honor, this seems almost blasphemous to us. And it might be, if it, wasn't pointing to something, if it was pointing to something we did in our own strength. But the future glorifying of your faith will be, cut, will be because of the one who is the object of your faith. We will lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. We will direct all praise and glory back to Him. Because it's only by Him and His work and His strength that we will endure with a refined and precious and glorified faith. True faith ultimately doesn't run to other gods to find joy, but agrees with the psalmist when he says in Psalm 16:4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And then in verse 11, but you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, true faith, when it is tested, withstands the fire. It knows that only in the presence of the Lord is there fullness of joy. 
Only at his right hand is true pleasure forevermore. Jesus, right now, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and Christian, you are seated with him. You have access right now to his presence, to his joy, to his pleasures, and it's all found in him. In verse 8, we continue. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, the Pharisees and the crowds saw Jesus in the flesh, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching with their own ears. They knew that he was resurrected, and yet they despised and rejected him. They saw, but they were blind. Faith doesn't come by sight, but faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You, if you are a Christian, you have not seen him, but you love him. You do not now see him, but you believe in him. You believe because you heard the truth of the gospel and received it as it really is, the word of God. And it is the power of salvation salvation to you. You received the good news and your affections were changed. You now hate the things of the world and you now love Christ. And what does it mean To love Christ. Well, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, I think what Peter is speaking of here is assurance of salvation. How can you know that you have genuine faith that will endure to the end? Well, Christian, do you trust in him? Are you trusting in him and all his promises? Is he your living hope? And do you love him? Do you strive to obey his commands? See, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you long to submit every aspect of your life and being to his lordship? I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about works righteousness. I'm talking about a genuine faith that works itself out in love and obedience. James, in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 17 18, says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. See, what Peter wants us to know is that genuine faith will produce love and obedience. And when we trust in and love 
Christ in times of ease and especially in times of suffering, we can have assurance that our faith is genuine, that we truly belong to Him, that His promises are ours, and that He is keeping an inheritance for us and us for it. And this assurance will cause us to rejoice with a glorified and inexpressible joy. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So is there purpose in suffering? Is there purpose in the trials of life? The purpose, church, is this, a refined faith, a precious faith, a faith that loves its Savior, a faith that produces a changed life, a life of obedience and faithfulness to your Lord. And perhaps most precious of all, in this broken and hopeless world, an unshakable confidence and assurance that you are, as verse 9 says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right now, we are obtaining the end result of this tested and genuine faith, the salvation of our souls. Obtaining is in the present tense here. This salvation is yours now. You can be certain that it's yours. So when trials come, rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Remember the joy of your salvation. Meditate upon the one who suffered to secure it for you. He suffered for joy, for the joy that was set before him of a purified bride, a people for his own possession. He suffered that you might know the joy and pleasure of the presence of God. And you suffer for joy, the joy of an assured faith, knowing with certainty that your salvation is secure. He has ordained your suffering so that you might cling all the more to the one who suffered in your place. He has ordained wave after wave of hardship so that you might dive more deeply into His grace. He has ordained the fiery trials so that when you endure, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that your faith is genuine. Verse 10 continues concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. After his resurrection, 
Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they were grieving the death of their Lord. But Luke records Jesus' response to them. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the prophets who wrote the scriptures from Moses all the way through to Malachi searched and inquired of the scriptures to try to understand the grace that's been given to you. The very scriptures, some of which they wrote with their own hands, they searched them. They longed to know who the Messiah would be, when he would appear. Here's just a sampling of some of the Old Testament prophecies that they would have sought to understand. The Messiah would be born of a woman, would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He would be heir to King David's throne. His throne would be anointed and eternal. He would be called Emmanuel. He would spend a season in Egypt. A massacre of children would happen at Messiah's birthplace. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He would be rejected by his own people. He would be a prophet. He would be preceded by Elijah. He would be declared to be the Son of God. He would be called a Nazarene. He would bring light to Galilee. He would speak in parables. He would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He would be called king. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be praised by little children. He would be betrayed. He would be falsely accused, but he would be silent before his accusers. He would be spat upon and struck. He would be hated without cause. He would be crucified with criminals. He would be given vinegar to drink. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would be mocked and ridiculed. Soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments. His bones would not be broken, but he would be forsaken by God. He would pray for his enemies. Soldiers would pierce his side. He would be buried with the rich. He would resurrect from the dead. He would be a sacrifice for sin. He would ascend to heaven and would be seated at God's right hand. That's 40 some odd prophecies of the Messiah. There's hundreds more. Not to mention all the Old Testament shadows and types which all point to Christ. And we're told in verse 12 that this grace and salvation that the prophets were so passionate to know that even the angels long to look into these things. That's incredible to me. The sinless and holy angels who are continually in the presence of God. They ceaselessly fly around his throne crying, holy, holy, holy. They're sent as messengers by God to carry the words of God to his prophets and his people. They are far more glorious and powerful than we can imagine. 
And if one of them appeared right here in this room, we would be tempted like the Apostle John to bow down and worship it. But those very angels are captivated by the grace that we have received. Grace, redemption, salvation is foreign to them. See, when Lucifer and his angels which followed him rebelled in sin, no grace was extended to them. There's no redemption, no hope, no salvation. All that awaits them is justice and wrath. The angels know that God is a gracious God, but they don't know it experientially. We can often look at the position of privilege that the angels have or look at the stories of faith in the Old Testament and be amazed or even envious of the things that they saw or experienced. But the truth is they would have given anything to see our day. To live on this side of the cross. Hebrews 11, 39-40, after listing the hall of faith, the faith of many of the Old Testament saints says, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided for us something better, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We have something better. We know Him. We know what He accomplished. We know the mercy and grace that is ours. We have His Spirit dwelling within us. We have the Scriptures completed. And we know that He was faithful to fulfill all His promises. So church, rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the grace given to you. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the fiery trials. Because you know that they are full of purpose. Let's pray.